0: are listening to the Classic Sermons Podcast from PreachTheBible.org, a ministry of North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California. You will hear fervent, old-fashioned revival sermons from great preachers of the past. It is our desire that you will be helped by this gospel message. 2 Kings 21, verse 1 says, Manasseh, was 12 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. Could I ask all the 12 year old young men and young women in our building to stand right now? You're, you're 12, you're not 11, you're not 13, but you're 12. Would you stand right now around the auditorium? 12 years old. Okay, remain standing for just a second. Guys, take a look around. Could you imagine tonight one of these folks that are standing being named the leader of the United States of America? I'd move to Canada, I guarantee you for sure. Thank you, folks. You may be seated. Twelve years old. Now, second thought. At the age of twelve if you've done that which is evil and wicked in the sight of the Lord. Now, when you, when, you, when you live wicked when you're 30 and 40 and 50 and 60, this statement may not apply. But at the age of 12, if you began to live a wicked life and you're given a position of rulership and you lead an entire nation to be evil, I wonder where we would need to look to find out why a 12-year-old was wicked. I'll tell you where to look. Look at his mom and look at his dad. Now, as I said, that might not be true, for, be true for a 30-year-old that has grown up and left home and is now making his own choices. But at the age of 12, if a kid begins to live a life that is defined by the Bible as being an evil kind of lifestyle, look at his daddy to find out why. And look at his mama to find out why. So when I read here that Manasseh began to rule and reign when his daddy would passed away, I said, I wonder what I would find out about his father if I did a little bit of background investigation into him. Of course, his daddy's name is Hezekiah. And I want you to, I don't want to just point out some things that I may have found in some books, but I want you to see what the Bible says about Hezekiah. What kind of a daddy was he? What kind of a king was he? Look with me please at the book of 2nd Kings chapter 18. The Bible says that Hezekiah began to reign when he's 25 years old and I want you to look down at verse number 3 of 2nd Kings 18 and find out what God said about Hezekiah. It says he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that David his father did. He removed the high places, break the images, cut down the groves. He break in pieces the brazen serpent that Moses had made. Isn't it amazing that which God had told Moses to prepare to save the nation of Israel, they turned into idolatry. And they began to worship the brazen image. So they said, let's tear that thing up, break it in pieces, chop it up, burn it. Now look at verse 5. It says that this man, Hezekiah, who had a son by the name of Manasseh, what kind of daddy was he? What kind of ruler was he? It says he trusted in the Lord God of Israel, so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor any that were before him. For he clave unto the Lord. And I read that, and I thought, man, that that doesn't add up to what I find out about his son, a couple of chapters later, and then I began to study and I found something, and that's what I want to talk to you about tonight. It was a normal day out in the East Coast Rise Pastoring. Secretary said, "Preacher, someone's here to see you, and could you see him now?" And I said, "Certainly, send them in." This fellow came in and he said, "Pastor, I'm here to make an announcement to you. Well." Uh, you can't help anybody that's there to make an announcement. They're not seeking your advice, and they would not take it if you tried to give it. So all you can do is just sort of sit there and say, well, what is the announcement? Is your wife going to have a baby, or you are going to buy a house, or uh, did you get a hole-in-one playing golf today? What is your announcement? He said, here's my announcement. He said, I do not love my wife anymore. And I'm going to leave her. And I'm going to marry another woman that's also a Christian who does not love her husband. Now that wasn't the kind of announcement I expected from this guy. I mean, even though I was not going to try to give him advice before he came in, man, I felt compelled that, boy, I better do some advising while I can. And I looked across the desk and I said, you've got to explain something to me. I said, how, as a Christian that you claim to be, and as a Christian that she claims to be, how can you do such a thing? He said, it's easy. He said, lots of folks do it. Lots of folks get married after they've divorced, and then lots of folks are happy. Now I want to tell you something tonight. This sermon, and I want, to, I want to set you at rest, this sermon is not a sermon where I'm going to dump on all folks that have had failed marriages here. But I'll tell you what, I don't believe there's a person in the sound of my voice tonight, whether your marriage has failed or not, that would not say, Brother Davis, preach it to these young people that you ought to stay married to the partner God gives you in the beginning. Now, I understand all all the various kind of things that transpire. And I'm not talking about the divorce aspect as much as I'm talking about this. Here's what frightened me. This man said, I have not done wrong yet, but I plan on doing wrong, and I'm going to do wrong, and then I'll get right with God, and we'll all be happy later. That's what worries me. It doesn't worry me that somebody falls into sin, but it worries me that somebody plans to sin. That's what worried me. And he said, after all, Brother Davis, I'll be happy. There are all kinds of people that have done what I'm going to do, and they're happy. This happened to be in the summer months of the year. And I said, let me have your mind for just a moment. You say you're going to be happy. And you're going to sin, and you're going to do this thing, and then you're going to get right with God, and then you plan to be happy. Let me have your mind for just a moment. I said, in just a few months, it's going to be Christmas. I said, let's, in our minds, load up in the automobile and drive over in front of your house where you have two sons. And Christmas morning, about 4.30 or 5 o'clock in the morning, because that's when all kids get out of bed on Christmas, The most ungodly thing I can imagine happening. Amen. (laughs) It's coming, brother. Hang on. And I said, let's look in the window. And let's watch your boys bound down the hallway and run out into the living room and turn on the Christmas tree lights and sit down and pull out the presents and begin to open their gifts. And then suddenly, I want you to see on their faces as they realize that Daddy is not going to be home this Christmas. I said, now tell me how happy you're going to be. Let me tell you something, ladies and gentlemen. There's more to this thing of living for the Lord than being on a spiritual high on Monday and a spiritual low on Tuesday and a spiritual high again on Wednesday. And you say, well, as long as I get right with God, isn't that all that counts? No, it's not all that counts. Somebody by the name of Manasseh is watching you. The eyes of Manasseh are upon you. This fella that had a son that did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord at the age of 12. He trusted, verse 5 of chapter 18 of Second Kings. He trusted in the Lord God of Israel. So that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor any that were before him. For he clave unto the Lord. You say, well, Brother Davis, how could he have had that problem with his son? I want you to look at verse 13 of that same chapter. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, did Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, come up against all the fenced cities of Judah, and he took him. Now wait a minute, I want you to understand something here. We're not talking about some little wimp, some little limp wrist, some little midget that was coming up against a giant and spouting off at the mouth. We're talking about somebody that said to every city he came against. He said, I'm going to get you. And he followed through with his threat. So when he said to Hezekiah, I'm going to get you. I'm going to destroy your walled cities. By the way, Hezekiah, I'm going to deliver on what I'm saying. Hezekiah began to backpedal just a little bit. And it frightened him. And the Bible says in verse 14, And Hezekiah, king of Judah... Sent to the king of Assyria. He said, I have offended. Return from me. By the way, look up here, ladies and gentlemen. When you are serving God, and you're doing that thing which you know it's God's will for you to do, when old Sennacherib comes and sticks up his ugly head and tries to cause you trouble, don't you dare apologize to him. We don't have anybody named Sennacherib coming after us. We got somebody named Slewfoot. Got somebody named Beelzebub. We got someone named the Evil One. We got someone named Satan. And he's always coming around trying to inflict a fright upon us for doing that which we know is right to do. But he said, Go to the king and tell him that I've offended him and and return from me. And now look what he says in verse 14. About halfway through, he says, That which thou puttest on me will I bear. He said, Sennacherib, I don't want you to destroy my city. By the way, you don't want the devil to get victory over you? Fall on your face and beg God. You don't start doing dealings with the devil. But he said, Sennacherib, I'm sorry. Return from me. And that which thou puttest on me, anything you say, I'll do it. So the king of Assyria appointed unto Hezekiah, the king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. In today's monetary amounts of money, uh, that would have been about $1.5 million. Now that's a lot of money for us to scrape up today. Imagine how much money that was back in those days. $1.5 million. Can you imagine Hezekiah calling his wife and said, Honey, let me have the checkbook. How much money do we have? Called in his accountant. Said, How much money do we have? And they pulled together all that they could find, and they had nothing near $1.5 million. Let me tell you something. When you begin to bargain with the devil, he always charges more than you have to pay. So you say, Where did he turn? Where did he go to find the 1.5 million bucks? Verse 15 says, Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord. Verse 16 says, At that time did Hezekiah cut off the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the pillars which Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king. Where did he find that which he was going to pay the devil's crowd? He stole it from God's house. You say, well, what a horrible king he was. Over here in verse number 5, it talks about he clave to the Lord. And he did that which was right in the sight of God. But verse 13 says he found himself in a little bit of trouble. And the first thing he did was begin to make deals with the devil. And it caused him to rob the house of God. Let me tell you something. I'm looking into the faces of folks tonight that have done the very same thing as I stand here before you this evening got yourselves in situations because you did not consult with the Heavenly Father, and now you're robbing God's house to pay off your debt to the devil. I'll tell you something else. If I don't tithe, and I don't put in my dollar that I promised last Wednesday night that's going to put in uh, for, the, for the sake of Brother Homer's ministry, I might as well sneak in here tonight. I've got a key. I might as well and I know the I know the, the combination to the alarm I might as well sneak into it tonight and steal the piano and sell it if I don't put in my tithe it's the same thing. So I don't like this. This isn't an Easter service kind of sermon. I'm an evangelist, I don't have any of those kinds. All I have is the kind that I'm giving right now. And he did that which was evil and wicked as he took sharp instruments and not only robbed all the coins that they had in God's house, but they began to salvage the gold that was even on the walls and the pillars and the doors, and he gave it to the devil's crowd. You say, what happened to him? Look over at chapter 20. 2 Kings. Some different things transpired between the account of disready and verse 20. Here's what it boils down to. As a result of his wickedness. Verse 1 of chapter 20 says, In those days. What days? The days we just described. Those turbulent days. Those days of deceit and thievery. Those days of turning from the Holy One to the Wicked One. In those days was Hezekiah sick unto death. The prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, came to him and said, Thus saith the Lord, set thine house in order, for thou shalt die and not live. By the way, when you mess around with the will of God, and you begin to do those things that cause God to look down upon you, and he's ashamed of your activity, let me tell you something. Don't you sit out there and think you can get away with it. We've got the same mentality that man had that he came to my office. I'm going to sin on Monday, and I'll get right with God on Tuesday, and everything will be okay. Boy, you got a surprise coming. And all of a sudden, Hezekiah said, I better get back on praying ground again. He'd been there before. Don't you remember verses 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5 of chapter 18 of 2 Kings? Don't you remember? He was one about whom the Bible said that he clave to the Lord. He'd been on praying ground before. But he said, boy, i better get back on praying ground again. So he began to confess, and he began to testify, and he began to pray, and he begged the Lord. The Bible says in verse number 4 of Second Kings chapter 20, it came to pass before Isaiah was gone out of the middle court, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Turn again and tell Hezekiah. Why? Because he had prayed, he had gotten right with God, he had begged the Lord for his mercy, and so God said, Okay, Hezekiah, I will give you mercy. And he said, go tell him. In verse 5, turn again and tell Ezekiah, the captain of my people, thus saith the Lord God of David thy father, I have heard thy prayer, I have seen thy tears, behold, I will heal thee. On the third day thou shalt go up into the house of the Lord, and I will add unto thy days fifteen years, and I will deliver thee and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria. Did you hear? When Hezekiah decided to pray, God said, okay, you prayed. Therefore, will I deliver this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Do you know that God would have delivered that city before he robbed the house of God if he had prayed in the first place? But it's always easier to take man's wisdom and thinking, well, I'll just get right with God later. It won't matter. I want this new model over here, so I'll just divorce the old one, and I'll go with the new one, and I'll get right with God later. After all, lots of people are happy. You don't see what it's like when somebody is all by themselves, and the lights are out, and there's nobody to impress with your whitewashed look. So he got right with God. The Lord said, hey, I'll deliver your city. Man, oh, Hezekiah, he's on top. Hezekiah, down in the bottom, facing death. God's judgment. Then he got right with God and back on top he went. But wait a second. He's not done. Verse 13 of chapter 20, 2 Kings. By the way, look up here. I tell you what, I, I think I know myself well enough that if I had been in that kind of trouble with God that he had me on the deathbed and about to give me the three count on the, with my shoulders pinned to the mat... And all of a sudden he said, hey man, it's okay, I'm going to extend your life, I'm going to deliver you out of the hands of the king of Assyria, everything's going to be all fine. I think you'd have seen a humble guy getting up off that bed, not trying to walk around like a peacock with my feathers displayed for everybody to see how proud I was. I'd have been saying, glory to God, let me tell you what God did for me. Not Hezekiah. Verse 13 says, Hezekiah hearkened unto them. There was a group of people that had come to Hezekiah and said, we understand God restored your nation. He said, yes. They said, show us what he did. And the Bible says, Hezekiah hearkened unto them, and he showed them all the house of the precious things, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious ointment, and all the house of his armor, and all that was found in his treasures. There was nothing in his house, nor in all of his dominion, that Hezekiah showed them not. There he was, getting puffed up with pride again a second time. spiritual roller coaster all the while in the kingdom voices were heard to speak they said did you hear about Hezekiah he was sick unto death did you hear about Hezekiah at one time the Bible says there was nobody like him in all the kingdom neither before him nor since then did you hear about Hezekiah he fell into sin he robbed the house of God. He stole gold and silver out of God's house. Hey, did you hear about Hezekiah? God forgave him. God restored him back. God filled up all of his treasuries again. Man, Hezekiah's back in business. And over in the shadows, watching and seeing the grace of God, but not necessarily seeing the judgment of God, was a young boy by the name of Manasseh. Mom and Dad, you hear me, and you hear me carefully this evening. My daughters don't necessarily see the midnight hand of God's judgment upon my life when I get alone with God and ask Him for His forgiveness. All they see is the grace. And if they see that I can go out and live like the devil... And not only fall into sin, but plan to sin. And I am still on top of things. They don't know how many hours I spent on the deathbed groveling with the Spirit of God. And before we know it, we've ruined Manasseh. Now you listen to me. Listen to what I'm going to say to you. I'm a little bit... Sick of what I see around the country of people that think they can do what they full well please on Saturday and Sunday as they go to church and about the things of God, and then they live like the devil Monday through Friday. And then they go back to church, and the preacher gives an altar call, and here we come! And we think, after all, it doesn't matter because does not God forgive? Does not the Lord, when he hears us confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness? Yes, that's true. But what I want to get across to you tonight and what I see happening around the country is that while you and I are spiritual roller coasters, Manasseh is watching every move we make. He came to me and he said, Brother Davis, he said... uh, Church has taken up too much of the time of our family. So we're going to go camping on the weekends. He said, we'll sing around the campfire. Now read the Bible to the young uns and we'll have devotions and it'll be fine. I said, Mr. Stokes, I beg you not to do that. I said, number one, your wife is on staff as a secretary in our school. And if you follow through on the choice that you just told me you were going to make, she will not be able to hold a job here. He said, then you're going to have to find yourself a replacement secretary. He said, "I, I, I, I work Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday. He said, I want to spend the weekend with my family. I said, you're making a tragic mistake. I said, let me beg you, let me do anything I can to talk you out of this. He said, you can't talk me out of it. I'm going to do it. Man, he had one boy in particular that had reached right around the sixth and seventh grade, and his age It's a problem child. And we had worked with him. He's in our school, and our, my youth pastor worked with him, began to help him, and he was doing much better. And I said, think about your kids. He said, they'll be fine. He said, and if it doesn't work out, we can always come back. I said, you can never come back like you left. He said, I'm going to do it. And he did. And his wife was replaced. And they did go camping three or four times. That's always just a ploy. He just sat home with his feet stuck up on the coffee table after that. About 10 years had lapsed, and I was asked by Pastor Miller to come back and preach an anniversary service at that church. I'd left there and gone to another church, and my assistant pastor had uh, taken uh, the reins of responsibility, and he called in to be a preacher at that church. And when I got back in town, he said, Brother Davis, he said, let me take you somewhere. I said, where? He said, just, just get in the car, let me take you. Rode out into Somerville. Pulled up to this place that was surrounded with tall cyclone kind of fence with razor wire around the top. Brother Miller showed a little card that he had been given by somebody and they looked at it and pushed a button and this gate came open. We drove through. had to show that card three different times to get into that facility. We finally got inside and they put us in a little room about eight feet wide by 10 feet, and they said, wait here. I went out and came back in in a moment. There was a young man standing there, looked like he was right around the age of 20, maybe 22, dressed in a uniform that the inmates wore, walked in, and I looked at him. And he looked at me, and there was recognition in his eyes, and vaguely could I recognize him. And suddenly, I said, are you? And I called his name. He said, yes. I said, what are you doing here? He said, you remember when Daddy took us out of church? He said, I remember it well. He said, I remember being sorry. I didn't want to be taken away. He said, Remember, they took us out of the school, put us in a public school. He said, Brother Davis, I got to running with the wrong crowd. He said, One day we're up in an old neighboring town. It's going to be closing time. I'm at a laundromat. Four or five of us boys decided we wanted to get some money for some more drugs and more liquor and some more fun. There was an easy place, just go in and knock over the laundromat, break open all the, the, uh, the, the coin things and steal the money. He said no sooner had we walked in and a woman, an elderly lady came in, well-dressed, carrying a leather purse, had a little basket with some clothes. He said, without even making any plans, one of the men went over and shut the door and put a chair up against the doorknob. Another guy went over to a little closet there and opened it up and found a broom and busted off the broom part and had a handle left in his hand. He said, Brother Davis, the next thing I know, he said, we were robbing that woman and not just robbing her. He said, we were beating her to death with that stick. He said, and they say, "I'm in here the rest of my life." He said, "I sure wish Daddy hadn't took us out of church." Oh, wait a minute. I preached in that church. The same one. Wait a minute. Would you like to know who was seated in there about two-thirds of the way back? His mom and his dad. They were in church. They had gotten forgiven. But God help Manasseh as he serves the rest of his life. Yeah, you can get right with God. You can do anything you want to. You can even divorce your wife or get rid of your husband or abandon your kids and live like the devil and then get right with God and confess it. Yes, you can. But you can never, you can never salvage a damaged Manasseh. I saw a note on the floor. I picked it up. It's not uncommon. Back in those days, I was pastoring, and I swept the floors. I vacuumed. I cleaned the toilets. I ran the mimeograph machine. I typed. I made all the visits and did everything. It wasn't uncommon to find a little note on the floor, written from one child to another. I like you if you like me. And if you like me, and then I'll like you. But if you don't like me, then I won't like you either. <laughs> found lots of those notes around there. And the folks who Clean This Auditorium, I'm sure, find abundances of those notes. But this one wasn't that kind of elementary note. This one was written in beautiful long hand. And it was a love note. Problem was, it was a love note from one of my choir members, a lady, to the man that I had as a single young man, playing the piano she was married with kids as a matter of fact her children were all in our church she had two teenagers and a and a young girl that was just getting into the teenage years and and they were lovely christian children with teenage soul winning every youth activity sunday morning sunday night wednesday night just a picture by the way every mom and dad in this room would have been proud especially of their oldest daughter and I read that note and I thought, good night, this can't be true. I thought, what am I going to do? Man, I was, I was a kid preacher, young. and I said, what am I going to do? I had to go down to South River, New Jersey. And on the way down there, I stopped at a little diner to get a cup of coffee. While I was sitting there in the diner, looking out across the road, Route 18 there, there was a motel directly across the street. And I saw physical evidence of what the note was describing as I saw that piano player and that choir member come out of the same room together. I said, God in heaven, help me. What am I going to do? I called the piano player in. He was staying with his mother and father. He was twenty, three or four years of age, lived two blocks from our church. And I said, Pal, you've got two days to get out of town and don't ask what's going to happen if you're not, because you don't want to know. He was out of town in one day. I guess there was something about the shaking body and the froth that was coming out of my mouth (laughs) that convinced him that I was not pleased with his activity. It wasn't quite that easy for the lady. Her husband was in our church, a fine Christian man, two teenage children and a young girl just about to enter the teenage years. I said, God, give me wisdom. I called her in and I said, I know what you've been doing. I'm not going to discuss it with you. I said, you need to get right with God. I said, you've sung your last solo. You've sung your last choir number. You've taught your last Sunday school lesson. You're out of everything. You can come to church and listen to the Bible. That's what you need to be doing. I said, but I said, I I can't. I don't want to expose you. I don't want to ruin your family. I don't want to destroy your kids. I said, but you're through. She looked at me. She said, oh, no, I'm not. She said, you're mistaken. She said, you're through. I said, excuse me. She said, I'll ruin you. I said, take your best shot. She did. Good shot. She didn't get me. She decided to accuse my wife of doing the same thing she was caught doing. When I was a kid, we used to catch gardener snakes, or gardener snakes, whatever you call them, some kind of snake. I don't know what they are. I don't like any kind of them, so it doesn't matter. And we'd catch those snakes and hold them by the tail, and we'd snap them like that, and if you snapped them real hard, their head would fly off. <laughs> I tell you that because that's exactly what I wanted to do to that woman. I wanted to catch her by the heel of her foot and... Whip and snap her head off. Man, you can say what you want to about me, but you let my family alone, you lying devil. Obviously, the lie fell on deaf ears and people knew. By the way, what she, I don't want to go into all the accusations, but she accused her of being the same way she was at that piano play with one of the oldest men in our church. That's a pretty good shot, but an unbelievable mate. (laughs) Wicked Jezebel, devil of a woman. Because of her wickedness and her vindictiveness, the story got to her husband and they finally ended up in divorce. The husband said, i got to leave. I can't stand to be around here anymore. Everywhere I look, I I see evidences of my family that's gone destroyed. I've got to leave, and I'm moving to Florida. I said, I beg you, don't do that. Look, the people that love you are here. The people that can help your children are here. Their school is here. Their church is here. Your pastor is here. Don't run. Let me help you. He said, no, I'm leaving. They left, went to Florida. Someone came back and said to Brother Miller, said, you'll never believe what we saw when we were down in Miami. That oldest girl, soul in her, loved God. Every daddy and every mama in this room would have been proud to call her your daughter. They said, preacher, she's gone. She's living under an overpass in Miami, Florida. Unless she can find some guy to sleep with to get a room and a shower to support her drug habits. She said, Preacher, she is gone. Oh, but Mama? Yeah, Mama's right with God now. As a matter of fact, somewhere tonight... She married a new husband, not the piano player that ran out of town. I don't think he ever had enough courage to marry anybody after I got through with him. But. <laughs> she married somebody else. And they have a van now. And they've got, a, they've got a, a mixer board. And they've got microphones. And they've got a tape player. And they've got backup music. And somewhere today, she and her new husband were given a sacred gospel concert in a church. Say, do you think she got right with God? I suppose she did. Can you get right with God? Yes, you can. Hallelujah. Glory to God, you can. We'd all be in a big fix if we couldn't. But while she has reestablished her spiritual life, I ask you, what about Manasseh? What about that little girl that's underneath a viaduct? Selling your body to the wicked, lustful desires of a filthy man. Yeah, you can get right with God later. But the price tag for your fund was paid for by Manasseh. The guest speaker finished his sermon. When he sat down, the host pastor said, no one knows this. I feel like maybe I need to share this with the folks now. He said, Years ago, there was a family in this man's church, and he pointed to the guest pastor, the guest speaker. Said they had a little got a little miffed about something in the church. Twenty years ago, a little four year old boy sitting there next to his mom and dad's side, and they got miffed at the preacher about something. Hey, let me ask you, why don't you get miffed at the devil? No, you always get miffed at the guy who's trying to help you the most. Now, I miffed at him. Upset, disgruntled. In the middle of that service where folks are taking pot shots at the preacher. They finally realized they weren't going to win, and they jumped up, and the woman jumped up and grabbed hold of the little four-year-old boy's hand, that little boy that every service would go up to the preacher and tug on his coat and say, Preacher, I love you as a four-year-old boy. By the way, four-year-old boys ought to be saying to their pastor, I love you. And three, and two, and five, and ten, and fifteen, and twenty, so I'm too big. No, you're not too big. that mom grabbed that boy by the hand and the fairly as well flapped in the breeze like a rag as she and her husband flew out of that building. Criticize and gossip and destroy and venom and anger. By the way, if I was in a church and the pastor even got up and preached heresy, I may leave. But I would not do so with the intent that I want to destroy that man's life. People have got holes in their heads where they ought not to have them. That which gives you reasoning has leaked out somewhere on the sidewalk. He said, ladies and gentlemen, that was 20 years ago that that happened. He said, the boy's mom and dad started coming back to our church, trying to get right with the Lord. We were helping. Mom even admitted she'd made a mistake. He said, but this week, their home that's located within sight of our church parking lot, I saw some flashing lights. The sound of sirens. He said, I thought maybe there's something that was wrong. Maybe I could help as a pastor. And I went there. He said, that little four-year-old boy now had grown. He's 24. He had taken himself a new bride. They had a little infant child. The 24-year-old boy had come home with some mixture of alcohol and some kind of dope. It was in a rage. came into the house and an argument erupted between the boy and his new wife. And in a fit of rage, that boy reached down and grabbed the infant child out of the mother's arms. Wrapped his big old hands around both of the little baby's legs as if it were the handle on a baseball bat. Began to beat the little mother. And when he finished, he took the child and just flung it against the wall. They called the ambulance, paramedics came, pronounced the infant dead at the scene. that mama that ran out of that building that night and that mama that had used her mouth like a garbage disposal, and that mama that had her taken the ears, that little four-year-old baby boy that once heard the songs of his Sunday school teacher singing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And she took that little boy and she destroyed him. But she got right with God. She got right with God. But what happened to Manasseh? What happened to Manasseh? Folks, you listen to me. The attitude that I can just do what I feel like on Monday. A devil may care kind of an attitude. And I'll get right with God again later. I'm gonna have my fling, then I'll get right with God. I'm gonna tell you something, you can do that. You can do it. But I'm gonna beg you in the name of Jesus tonight to stop and think about Manasseh for just one moment. Hey dad, the next time your hands reach out at that magazine rack and you think nobody is watching and you're about ready to pick up that pornographic magazine. Nobody's around! You're in some bookstore at some distant city somewhere, nobody's gonna see! God's gonna see! Jokes that come into our ears that we ought not to listen to, God knows! Let me tell you what Manasseh needs to see. Manasseh needs to see a daddy that's a spiritual leader in his home. Manasseh needs to see a daddy that's saved and baptized and a church member and loves this Bible and is not ashamed of the word of God. Manasseh needs to see a daddy go out soul winning. Man, a thrilled Saturday morning. Brother Frank Wilkins showed up at uh, our Faithfulness Rally. Had his son with him. He brought him over. And said, "Brother Davis, my son, he's going out winning with me today." Man, glory to God! That's what Manasseh needs to see. And I want you to listen. Listen to Manasseh. Listen as he says, Brother Davis, I wish my dad hadn't pulled us out of church. See Manasseh as she lays under some viaduct. Perhaps in some room with a wicked man. Hear the cries of disbelief of the empty, armed little mother. And I'm going to ask you to make a covenant with Almighty God tonight. I'm going to ask you if it's not about time we decided to live holy. Do you hear me? Holy. Holy. Not just on Monday, but make it a full time business. Holy! You don't know who's off in the shadows watching. When our girls were given to us by the Lord, I remember sitting outside, looking outside that little window area where they have all the babies in the newborn nursery. Watching them lay in there in their little bassinet type of a thing And looking in there and thinking what a what a tragedy If my wife and I would give birth to life For that little life to grow up and hate the one that we decided we wanted to serve It's not an easy it's not an easy task matter of fact I don't I know of no more awesome task at hand And I'm asking Daddy, I'm asking Mom to make a vow to Almighty God to live holy. Abandon your thoughts of premeditated sin. Get rid of the stinking liquor bottles. Take HBO and blow it up in the backyard. Get the filth off your television. Get the magazines out of your home that are glorifying worldliness and making fun of godliness. Shut your mouth when it comes to criticizing godly people. Oh, but don't godly people make mistakes? Yes, they do. But you don't need to repeat what you see them make a mistake in doing. Why would you want to destroy Manasseh? Why you just had a good time criticizing somebody just for the feeling of feeling good that you ran off at the mouth about somebody? He left a note. He left a note before he, at the age of 15 years old. They don't know how much liquor that he'd consumed. They said almost enough that he would have died of alcohol poisoning, had the carbon monoxide not killed him first dead drunk in a car with all the windows rolled up and with some object put up in the exhaust system of the car. He left a note. When they found his dead body, the note said, Why did Dad do that to us? Why did he do it? You know that man that sat in my office and said, boy, we're gonna have a good time, we're gonna be happy, and everything will be hunky-dory, and it's okay, God to forgive me, and it's all right. By the way, God did forgive him, I have no doubts about that. But I can stand here and tell you that he's not happy. As he came and looked into the casket of his dead 15-year-old boy, whose last words were scribbled, why did dad do that? By the way, that's a legitimate question. The eyes of Manasseh are upon me. The eyes of Manasseh are upon you. Why don't we just strip aside all the fake whitewash and why don't we admit it tonight if God's Holy Spirit has reached out and Tapped us on the shoulder and said that's for you Now Manasseh let me say a word to you So who's Manasseh? That's your your kids You don't have to go to the devil just because you saw somebody else go And by the way that's not going to be an excuse that God will accept that little girl tonight that sleeps under the viaduct is going to have to stand in front of God and when she says the reason I did that is because of what my mom did God's going to say that's not a good excuse that guy that's in the penitentiary for life unless something else happens is going to have to stand before God and he's going to say the reason I did what I did is because of what my dad did and God's going to say that's not a good enough excuse you look up here kids you will give an account to God based upon your own decisions. And have an idea there's a good number of you folks in this room tonight that are in your teen years and younger The need to come to an old-fashioned altar and kneel down here and just flat out get right with God. Get rid of that rebellious spirit and get rid of that chip off your shoulder and get rid of that uh, I-can-do-what-I-want kind of an attitude that so, so often the devil throws off on teenagers. Why don't you just decide tonight that you're going to get right with God? You know why? Because there's somebody watching you too. Never will forget the guy, 11th grader in our school, he used to sneak out in the barn and smoke. His little 6th grade brother idolized him. Found the cigarettes that he'd hidden out in the barn. Went out there and lit up a cigarette. Of course, did not know all the art of sneaking around and and how to smoke and all that stuff. And made a mistake and caught the barn on fire. Cattle were in there. Livestock were in there. Out on the farm. Trying to cover up what he had done wrong and get the fire put out. He stayed in too long, was overcome with smoke and burned to death in the fire because his eyes were fixed upon his brother. Boy, I tell you what, it'd be a scary thing for me to be a brother and lead my brothers or my sisters away from the Lord. Yeah, the eyes of Manasseh are upon you too, kids. They're on us all. God help us. Those that have their eyes fixed upon us, May it not be recorded that they did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord simply because they watched us up and down like a yo-yo. May I ask you a question? Don't you think you have room in your life tonight to come to an old-fashioned altar and kneel down and say, You know, there's some business I need to take care of with God tonight. I never preach this sermon. That I don't have to confess things to the Lord about it. I invite you to do the same. Thank you for listening to the Classic Sermons podcast from PreachTheBible.org, a ministry of North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California. To listen to many more powerful sermons, visit our website.